Welcome to Rad People I Know. This is a podcast about how extraordinary people are every day. Life is not just about what you do, but who you are in what you do. All of us know a whole bunch of rad people. These are some of mine. I hope you enjoy their stories. Why and when did you decide to write the book about her? What, what prompted you to take that a bit further to say, I really want to write a, a, a good book about this composer, this woman in her life? That's a great question. Um, one of the reasons it took me so long to finally write the book is that putting her life back together again meant I needed to look in music magazines throughout a 55-year period. She wrote for the musical Leader Weekly for um, almost 26 years. And it was through those resources where almost one sentence at a time I put together what she was thinking, what she was writing, and what her aspirations were. Wow. Mm. So at one point, I needed the full spectrum of Musical Leader magazine. So a weekly magazine from 1901 until her death in 1955. And the only library in the United States that had the full spectrum was in Chicago. So I flew to Chicago stayed for eight days and the library was open 10 hours a day and I, I wouldn't even take a food break. I would just sit there and read and read and read and read. So, and I did get through all 50 wow. years. But I learned so much. I mean, um, when she was writing about her own music, she might mention a piece that I hadn't heard of. And so I had a new title to go look for. And um, along the line, the internet was gradually being able to help me a little bit more. So it literally took about 20 years to piece her life back together to where I could write a coherent story. And um, the Library of Congress has several dozen of her personal letters. So I um, photocopied all of those and incorporated that information so that there's family information, information about her music, about her career, about what she's writing, what she's facing as a woman and as a professional musician. Yeah. Yeah. Long yeah. Tell us a bit about that because, I mean, she did um – you know, she did achieve some notoriety in her life, um, you know, even by becoming a professor, as we said before. But um, just to give everyone a, a good picture of maybe what what her challenges would have been, even even as someone who was respected in her field, as she, she obviously was, and she was very involved. So, I mean, some of her con- her teachers, as, we, as you said, Nadia Boulanger, some of her contemporaries, you know, Percy Granger uh, gets gets mentioned there. And then, of course, uh, Milton Babbitt was a student of hers. So she's right up there with some of the bigger names of 20th century music. Um, just what would her life have been like to, I guess, live at that level, I think, in your opinion, in the, in the American uh, society at that time? Oh, 
I think that outwardly, most of her colleagues um, respected her mm -hmm. and respected her music and respected her opinions. But she clearly faced some misogyny as well. Um, yeah. For example, after her death, uh, Milton Babbitt was interviewed uh, about her and spoke in a very disparaging way about her and about her music, about how low her voice was, almost as if to say, well, you know, she was one of those um, thinking that she was lesbian or bisexual. And I don't right. know the answer uh, to that, but he, he just, he couldn't address her place in the first half of the 20th century in America in a way that made any sense. Um, I think now that my book has come out, and certainly mostly because more of her music has come out, musicians are looking at her in a different light now, I think. Right, right. Man, yeah, interesting how, you know, um, I mean, it's, it's obviously a male-dominated narrative, you know, throughout classical music, um, as it is with you know, many things. We're not going to hide behind that that didn't happen. That obviously happened, you know, in a grand way. And, um, you know, we can talk a bit later about what we feel may or may not have changed, but, you know, it, it strikes me, um, it strikes me still the attitude, uh, I think, of women in music. I mean, I went on to play, you know, rock music, as you know, and, you know, you would think, well, rock music, pretty progressive, you know, shouldn't be too hard to be taken seriously. Um, and I remember distinctly a couple of times when I was first gigging, and a guy came up to me after a show and he said, wow, he's like, you're really good. You use all four strings, like, like, <laughs> but seriously, you know? And I, <laughs> I just remember thinking to myself, man, you would never say that to a dude bass player. You would never say that, you know? You never and would. Never would say it, you know? And I went through um, a period, certainly in the first album, where I felt that, you know, I had to prove that I could actually play. And in fact, I feel I overplayed on the first album. Like I probably... Um, you know, instead of you know, really playing always what was right for the song, um, I was trying to showcase my abilities sometimes. And I feel that, you know, definitely by the second album, I was over all that and I 100% I played for the song. But I wonder, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult because I feel women have to do a lot more to be taken seriously still today, you know, in, in musical performance. Uh, I mean, I, I feel it's, you know, if you're... A, a beautiful woman, you know, maybe you're talented, maybe you're not, we'll pay attention. You know, if you're not a beautiful woman, you know, you should really be talented because there's no reason to pay attention to you, you know. <laughs> and um, and people can say that, that it's not like that all they want, but we, we all know that that's true. <laughs> you know. There's way too much truth in that. And some of the attitudes um, of that nature about Marion and her sister, Emily Francis, who was a uh, widely respected music critic, uh, first quarter of the 20th century, some of those opinions bleed into current times. For example, um, there was a review of Marion and her music in a British publication about 15 years ago, and they, first of all, misspelled uh, the, the name of the piece, and then they characterized it as a, a nice salon piece, which is totally wrong 
with Emily Francis, um, at the time of the premiere of Pierrot Lunaire by Schoenberg in the United States, she went to that premiere and wrote a very lucid reaction to it, um, really quite beyond her time. And about, mm -hmm. about 10 years ago, a couple of scholars were uh, writing about the reaction of Pierrot Lunaire, and they said, well, there was one critic, and then they quoted Emily Francis as being, wow. However, they misspelled her name. Instead of Emily, it was a meal, and instead oh. of Francis with an E, it was Francis with an I. And so oh they, they changed her name into... A, a masculine name, Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it, I mean, it's interesting you say that because didn't she also compose music but under a masculine pseudonym? She Francisco Di Nogero. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and it, yeah, there were probably a lot of women that were doing that, you know, just... Oh, dozens of them. In fact, uh, well, first let me talk about Francisco Di Nogero and then remind me to come back to a story about the Library of Congress. So I had known that Emily Francis used this pseudonym and her works would get reviews like this. She wrote a really terrible song called My Love is a Muleteer. <laughs> really uh, kind of typical mid-teens music, yeah. you know, kind of syrupy stuff. <clears throat> and a, a critic wrote, well, we don't know anything about this composer. We think he must be out of San Sebastian and so on. So, but I wondered why Francisco de Nogero? Well, I knew along the way from reading her personal correspondence that San Francisco was one of her favorite cities. So, and plus her middle name is Francis. So that made sense. But what about Nogero? And years after... I had first read this name. I realized that Nogero is Oregon backwards. So oh. it's... Oh, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I love that. That's fantastic. So going back to my story about the Library of Congress, uh, the second or third time I went there, I had um, probably an, an additional 100 names just going to look and see if they had some music to see if it's something that I'd be interested in. And I had the pseudonyms of maybe a dozen women composers. And as I was looking in the card catalog, they would have the music under the pseudonym, but without any notation that, in fact, this is a pseudonym, and here's the name of the real composer. Right. They would always give a little description of the music and refer to the composer as he this and he that. <laughs> so, and there was one uh, composer, uh, her last name was Simon. She used five different pseudonyms. So mm -hmm. she published with five different publishers and a different pseudonym with each one. And the Library of Congress, our national library, did not know that this was all the same person. No. I had wow. to, 
Yeah, I had to say, you know, your <laughs> catalog could use a little cleaning up here. <laughs> but you didn't volunteer for the job, obviously. <laughs> Not that one. <laughs> Another one, which we will talk about. Yeah. Um, so how long did it take you to write the book? Because obviously this is a lot of extensive, uh, extensive research, um, you know, before the internet, which required a card cataloging skills, which I, I still possess. I'm confident I could get, a, get my way around a card catalog, but not many would be able to. Um, and, you know, so what were, what were sort of the different challenges? Um, and obviously you had your full-time uh, teaching and performing. So I imagine that obviously had an impact on the length of time as well. But um, this, yeah, obviously this was a an enormous project over several years. Yes. So I would say I had enough information after about 18 years that I began to think, you know, I, I could write a book about this. Mm -hmm. And by that time I'd been to the library in Chicago and I had a lot of uh, great quotations from Marion's own writing for the magazine. So as it happened during that time, um, my husband, who is a physician, had actually retired from cardiology. And he decided after a couple of years of retirement that he wanted to pursue psychiatry. He was in his 60s at the time. Wow. He got a residency in Philadelphia for three years uh, to train to be a psychiatrist. Wow. And we had a commuter marriage um <laughs> every now and again we'd meet somewhere in the middle but mm -hmm. uh, his schedule wouldn't allow him long periods so i got a sabbatical from whitman for a semester and i thought this is my time to really explore right. writing mm -hmm. the book about marion and mm -hmm. since i was literally living in downtown philadelphia it was just a quick train down to the library of congress or to any of the Philadelphia libraries also. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah. Awesome. That's great. Um, well, we are going to listen to a piece of Marion's now, the Up the Aqualock. I can't say it properly. <laughs> that's the one. Thank you. Um, and you are performing uh, on violin on this piece as well. Um, tell us a little bit about this piece, um, you know, why you love it so much um, and you know any I don't know what resonates with you as a performer when you know when you're because I would imagine the energy of it would be a lot different you know given the history that you have with her and the piece and um, the connection that you made through all that time so just tell us a little bit about that before we listen to this gorgeous piece. well let me tell you a little of the history of it <clears throat> Marion was living in New York <clears throat> at the time she composed this piece. And in their same apartment building, there was a famous violinist named Maud Powell, who is mm -hmm. a very highly respected concert violinist. And Marion ran into Maud Powell one day, and Maud said to Marion, oh, why don't you write something for me? And <laughs> Marion said, you know, I need the the inspiration to do it. You're such an incredible performer. I don't quite know what to write for you. And Maud mm -hmm. smiled and said, come up to my apartment. I'm going to show you something. Well, as it turned out, Maud Powell had just gotten back from 
uh, concert engagements in Florida. Now, this right. was back around 1910. And mm -hmm. to get from one engagement to another in Florida, she had to take a boat ride up the Ocklawaha River. <laughs> there were some rapids in it, and there was moss hanging down from trees, so it was very picturesque and exciting. And so Maud Powell wrote a little poem about the experience, and she handed Marion Bauer the poem and said, write a piece for violin and piano that describes this trip. Wow. Three hours later, Marion knocked on Maud Powell's apartment door and said, I believe I have it. And, had, and Maud Powell could hear in her head as well. And Maud Powell looked at the manuscript and began to cry. And she said, you've absolutely captured the experience for me. So it was Maud Powell who premiered the piece uh, about 1912 or so, and then Marion got it published the next year. So this is during Marion's time where she's pretty heavily influenced by Impressionism. So if you think about um, some of Debussy's uh, more mysterious piano pieces, there are a lot of uh, chords with very low notes, and the middle of the piano is left vacant, so you have very high and very low and parallel chords, trying to paint a picture. And this is what Marion does in the first third of the piece, which is a description of going down the Oklawaha River and looking at moss hanging from mm -hmm. trees. And then they hit the rapids, and so the piece suddenly becomes a lot more animated. Mm -hmm. And after they're through with the rapids, then we hear... Uh, something of a repetition of the first third of the piece at the end. Nice. All right. Well, let's take a listen. And who's on piano with you? Deborah Falkland. Oh, yes. Okay. Excellent. All right. Thank you. 
Wow, well, fantastic performance, well done. <laughs> really, uh, I, I just love those um, last notes so haunting that just, yeah, incredible. Yeah, wow. Um, so, in, well, maybe let's just, in terms of her music, because she does have quite a large repertoire, um, has a good portion of it um, still not been recorded or because um, I honestly couldn't find many recordings of her work. Online. Right. The vast majority has not been recorded. So but are there published manuscripts of most of the work still? No. Still there not, are, right. Right. Uh, part of that is the difficulty with the estate, which actually now the estate has passed to an, a new entity and she happens to be very helpful. Okay. But it's it's still going to take a lot of time to sort through her manuscripts. Um, she wrote about 160 pieces, and mm -hmm. I found all, all but a handful of them. So the manuscripts are out there and available, but my goodness, it, it, it would take 10 people a lifetime each to bring out all of her works. And you need a modern edition of these pieces for right. To be able to uh, record yeah. them, so. Well, I want to talk about that um, a little bit at the end about you know how what's being done to progress these kinds of things. But before we get there, I wanted to ask one final question on the book: was um, you know what were the unexpected outcomes of writing the book? You know, intangible benefits or things that you just weren't expecting to have happen, or the or any you know, feeling that you had, anything that, you're, um, that you just weren't expecting on this journey when you finished the book? <laughs> well, I think, I think the biggest surprise, which has a connection to my current project, is that when the composer Samuels Jones was in Walla Walla um, for a retrospective of his pieces, he stayed in our guest house, and I got to know him and his music for the first time. And I gave him a copy of my Bauer book as a gift. Mm -hmm. The book had been out maybe a, a year or so at that point. And sometimes when I give it as a gift, I never hear anything. Well, Sam called a couple months later and said he had read it and that it was a masterpiece of arts and letters and wrote a beautiful paragraph about it that I could use for publicity, which was so thoughtful and generous of him. And then a couple months after that, he called again to say he had read it again and asked me to be his biographer. Wow. That's that has to be the most unexpected <laughs> outcome. Definitely. Well, that's absolutely fantastic. And, um, yeah, what a what a credit! I mean, uh, so for those that are interested, it is on Amazon. And again, the title is I want to read the long title. I've written it down here. It's God, I can't even read my own writing anymore because I typed so much on the computer. Why don't you say the title? Because I can't find it in my notes. <laughs> Marion and Emily Frances Bauer from the Wild West to American Musical Modernism. There we go. Yes. <laughs> um, excellent. I should tell your listeners why I say it's from the Wild West. Yes. Because Walla Walla was established as a town in 1857 
Marion's dad came here with the 9th Infantry. He was an immigrant from France. He came to Walla Walla with the 9th Infantry and then set up a shop when he was released from the Army. And it was the Wild West. There were gunfights in the streets. Um, there were 22 saloons in this tiny town. Holy cow. Lots of fist fights and horses running down the streets and oh it, it was wild and how amazing you know even even i always think you know being a girl from a small town and being able to you know have having seen a lot in the world and traveled very widely i'm very fortunate but of course back in those days you know coming from walla walla and going to paris i mean that must have seemed like just a dream you know how would you even think you would ever have that experience i mean that's pretty remarkable well, she was lucky in several ways. Um, one is that her mother was a linguist. Marion's mother was a linguist. She spoke seven languages fluently. And so Marion and her sister, Emily Frances, spoke fluent French um, and German. And Emily Frances was also fluent in Italian. So Marion could very easily go to France and communicate very readily. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's really makes, wow, that's very and important. Their mother was a true progressive of the time, um, was a strong advocate for suffrage, um, wanted her daughters to grow up to be independent women, um, mm -hmm. tremendous role model for them. Fantastic. Yeah. That also gave someone like Marion the confidence to go to Yeah, definitely, definitely. Oh, we love those strong women. <laughs> All right. Um, so the next thing I want to move on to really um, in terms of, you know, major things that, that you've done as a result of this work is the curriculum aspect. So you designed and pioneered um, the Women as Composers course at Whitman College. Um, maybe just give us a, a brief outline of the course. Is it theory, history? You know, what constitutes the course? Is it the same every year? Does it evolve? How did, how did that, so, and how many years did you teach it? Uh, let's see, I think I started about the year 2000, so I taught it every other year, so nine times over 18 years. Mm -hmm. And it changed from year to year because uh, in the interim two years, I would often have a brand new composer I'd learned about and thought mm -hmm. this person should be incorporated into the course. So it was fairly little music theory, mostly music history, but yeah. a heavy emphasis on what did these women write? What did it sound like? Mm -hmm. Their lives like? What enabled them to be women composers? What were the roadblocks they ran into? Mm -hmm. so, yeah, it was sociological as well as musical. And did you find that the, there was wider interest other than the, you know, music students and music majors? Did you have a large amount of people taking it as an elective? Very, a, a large yeah. number, yeah. So yeah, maybe half the students were non-music majors. Was there any uh, difficulty or challenges in getting it onto the curriculum or as part of the academic syllabus? Not at all. Go? No, jumped at the chance. <laughs> Fantastic. No. Whitman College was uh, gracious and open-minded with yeah. my research. 
to your knowledge, um, how many more programs like this exist uh, in campuses or colleges across America? Are there many um, that have courses dedicated to women composers? No. You know, no, I wouldn't have thought so. There may be one or two others uh, specifically to women composers, but not a lot. Um, no, no. One, one of the things that I've done well, let me back up a little bit. Um, the iconic music history text uh, since 1960 uh, by Donald J. Grout called... Oh, I, I remember that book. Yeah. <laughs> a History of Western Music. Uh, yes. So, I, it's still very much in, in use today. It's now called the Poliska Grout, and Donald J. Grout has died, but... At any rate, um, since the book is still in publication and they do alter it um, every now and again, I wanted the music of Louise Ferenc and her life to be included in this book because mm -hmm. it had, I think, three or four women composers at the time, and I thought they really ought to include Louise Ferenc. And so I wrote to the senior editor, I won't name him here, but I asked if Louise Ferenc um, was going to be included because for the very first time, this was in 2001, they were including Amy Beach. Right. Mm -hmm. And the answer was, no, Louise Ferenc is not in the grout blessed circle yet. Oh, are you joking? Are you kidding me? I, I, I've got it in writing. Oh, man. That's nuts. It tells you everything you need to know everything. about attitudes. And going that they were including Amy Beach for the very first time in 2001. And what a publisher will do is send out some galley copies, a few of them to scholars around the country, so they can look at the new sections and comment about it. And the okay. way the way Amy Beach was introduced in the galley copy is, was the wife of the Harvard surgeon. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> and when a few of us across the country screamed about it, one mm -hmm. person tried to defend it as saying, well, very often one person is introduced as being related to another, but this is a music history textbook. It's a music history book, yeah. What does a Harvard surgeon have to do? <laughs> Man, that astounds me because this is, you know, I mean, 2000, that's astounding. I'm absolutely gobsmacked by that. I, mean, I shouldn't be, but I am, you know. I mean, and it leads, I mean, I, I think that leads very nicely into a question I have around, you know, what is, what is the plight of the modern woman composer now, you know, um, you know, how many of the challenges of old still exist, you know, because I, I, one of the reasons, I mean, there were many reasons, um, I went and pursued my master's in composition, as you know, but I went into it with the idea that, well, none of my stuff is ever going to be performed because it's just not, I'm a woman, you know, and, <laughs> And, you know, the best outcome for me would be teaching or, or whatever, which, you know, I, I wasn't actually interested in a teaching career. Um, but it's almost like I gave up on myself, 
even before I started simply because I knew, you know, I mean, I knew what the dynamic was and let's assume that I'm not like at the genius level of composers, but I might be a very good composer, you know, enough to be performed. Um, it even lessens my chances still because we are still struggling to get the geniuses performed and recognized and written about and in the history books and, you know, played. Um, so, so what is the plight of the modern woman composer? Is it the same? Has it changed? Is it, I think it's changed a little, mm -hmm. um, and in part because there are few composers who have broken through the glass ceiling. Uh, one of the big ones that comes to mind is Ellen Taft's Willick, whose, um, I think it's her third symphony, was uh, recorded by the New York Philharmonic. Uh, she's received a Pulitzer Prize, and her work is very widely recorded. Mm -hmm. uh, another is Jennifer Higdon, who's a Philadelphia-based composer, um, wonderful composer who's getting more attention. Mm -hmm. So it gives those who would aspire to be composers role models. Right. And that's in part what I had in mind as well for my Women as Composers class, that you know, there, there have been women composers, so don't don't think you can't do it. Mm. Well, and I and I always thought, um, you know, that was one of my proudest achievements. I think at Whitman, you know, I came in as a piano uh, major, and due to my desire to be more social than spend time in the practice room, <laughs> I will completely own up to that. <laughs> um, you know, I, I was always more suited for group performances and, and group, uh, you know, music making, um, but. I remember, um, and there was no, there's no composition class at the time. Um, we were just studying, I think, 20th century compositions with um, James Marshall. And you may remember Joe Dewey at the time. Sure. Sure. And he had started writing some classical pieces. And I remember, I think it was when we were studying the uh, various modes and the, and the scales based on the modes with you. And um, so I came across the Dorian mode and I just loved it. I just loved that scale so much. And I wrote my very first piece, which was um, a Benedictus um, based on the Dorian mode. And so from there, I was like, well, I want to write the entire mass. I, I just want to finish this piece, you know, and I took it on myself. It's a very ambitious piece. There are some bits that um, I think I'm so proud of, they work so amazingly well. We did perform it, it was my senior recital in the end, not piano. Right. And um, and Joe Dewey and I did a joint recital and um, and it is one of my proudest moments because, um, you know, it just, it, I, I believe we did the first concert of, of original student compositions um, right. at Whitman. And, um, and for me, it was a huge achievement having been you know, what I considered to be a bit of a failure on the, as a, as a concert pianist or as a performing pianist. Um, but even the whole exercise of going through that and then, and then getting it performed and, and even the, uh, the master's program I chose in New Zealand, one of the reasons I went there was because it was a small program and because I felt I had really not a lot of background in orchestration. I had a very strong theory from yourself. Um, and very strong history, but, you know, there wasn't a lot of practice around composition and orchestration and arranging um, in the degree that I did at Whitman. And so 
I thought, well, I need, I need that attention. I need to understand, you know, what works in a composition and, and what doesn't. And, um, and so, you know, I mean, that is one of my proudest moments. And I was able in my master's degree to pretty much get everything I wrote performed, which also is a gift. If you're a composer, you want, you absolutely want to hear, you know, what does it actually sound like? And um, there's a piece from that period, which um, I entered it in a composition competition. And the, the criteria was the, the piece itself, but also the performance had to be true to the score. And I did a piece for two pianos called Articulate Arcs. <laughs> and it was interesting because the format of it was, you know, the first and third movements were very um, extremely fast, very challenging. But the second movement, I did a lot of those very big expansive chords that we were talking about before, right through the second uh, movement. And I remember giving the score to a good friend of mine and I told, she was a absolutely superb piano player could sight read anything and I told her I said this is you're gonna have to practice like don't just rock up the day of the thing and sight read your way through it because you're gonna have to practice and I and I impressed upon her and she was the lead pianist and about a week before the <laughs> a week before the um competition she said oh she goes god she goes this is really hard she goes I just haven't had a look at it and so they had to slow down um, the, the tempo of the first and the third movement so she could play it. And uh, my most heartbreaking moment was uh, the, the head of the music department said, he came up to me and he said, your piece would have won, except that the performance was not true to the pace that you wrote it at. You know? oh. And I was like, oh. So I, I didn't get to hear that, you know, the way that I meant it when I wrote it. Um, but, you know, still, I mean, just, just that experience, just a few concentrated years of uh, learning more about, um, you know, instrumentation and what works and what doesn't together. I found it really fascinating, but, you know, very short space of time, you know. And so I think um, to be able to dedicate your life creatively to writing classical music is really a privilege, you know, and... No, and I think that women in particular, you know, would really add to the richness of the whole repertoire, um, yes. you know, if, if they could just be given a bit more, be welcomed into the grout inner circle. <laughs> so the blessed circle. The blessed circle, that's right. Um, so I'm guessing that there's still so much work to be done here. Um, both in the area of research and um, uh, performing. Um, and, and to that effect, I was going to ask, um, you know, for example, are they keeping the course that you had at Whitman or is the fact that you're now gone, there's no one picking up the flag? Like what's the, who's out there fighting the good fight? <laughs> it's uh, Dr. Amy Dodds is fighting the fight. Um, oh, good. She, back in the 80s, she was a violin student of mine, although she was at Walla Walla University at the time. And she's now on the Whitman College faculty. And she was very interested in women composers, did some of her own research about a particular British composer. And she took my course two times over. And then when I retired, I gave her all my course notes. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> she's altering it to to fit her own trajectory but yes that's good so i'm glad that it's 
carrying on. Otherwise, we might have to bring you out of retirement. And we, <laughs> and you're not really in retirement, are you? Because what, uh, you've already mentioned the book that you're doing for Samuel Jones, but you also have another interesting side project in the Walla Walla community, um, helping uh, the graveyard uh, there re-document uh, their records correctly. So do you want to maybe tell us a little bit about that project? <laughs> Sure. Well, I became acquainted with our historic graveyard when I was looking for Marion Bowers' dad, who's buried there, <clears throat> and was very disturbed that his headstone was broken in two, and so got permission to have it repaired. But it made me curious about the history of Walla Walla as represented in the graveyard, because, of course, in doing the Bower research, I had to go through the earliest history of the town, which I found fascinating. So in the course of doing that, I discovered that the database for the graveyard is uh, in a real mess in some ways. Um, I discovered that when they went to an online database, they hired an intern rather than an expert, and the, the person was quite careless in the way he or she transferred from little handwritten burial cards onto the computerized version. And it was such a mess that I finally decided, well, I volunteered to help straighten it out, um, which has been fascinating for me. And so I go over there, photograph a couple hundred graves, and see if I can find the person in the existing database, which, you know, quite a few times the last name is misspelled in the database, so it, it takes some poking around in ingenuity, but um, so far I've been through about 2,000 graves and made corrections to about 1,000 entries in the database. And along the way, I've run across some really fascinating stories of early Walla Wallans. Looked them up in historic papers yeah. and that sort of thing. It's been great fun. Wow, interesting. Oh, that's awesome. Um, excellent. So do you think uh, after you finish this next book, will you be able to help yourself? Will you carry on doing little bits of research on the side? Or do you feel that there's a point where you know, you feel like you've done what you need to do and that's that? Or do you still have drive and passion to, um, you know, pick up some of that work later on? Right now, I don't think that's what I want to do. Right. Um, but I do have, oh, maybe half a dozen former Whitman students who have gone on in music history to graduate mm -hmm. programs. And they've become interested in focusing on a particular composer to bring out her music. And I'm able to help them find the music and help them with the process of doing editorial marks and that sort of thing. So I nice. feel like I've passed the baton on to. Oh, that's good. That's well, a great yeah. feeling. That's good. Yeah, it's awesome. a great feeling. All right. That's good. Well, and. The most important question, what is your favorite memory of me as a student? <laughs> I think it, well, there's so many, but um, 
I think it was the look on your face when you hand me an assignment and within five seconds I would say, you want to fix this, this, and this? <laughs> yes. That was and, a weekly occurrence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, to me, it's the mark of a great student where you see that curiosity, the actual desire to know what hasn't gone so well and mm -hmm. uh, figure out ways of not making that mistake again. But mm -hmm. I remember you as an A-plus student, so there couldn't have been all that many mistakes. <laughs> it was only because I came to you with my mistakes before the real thing was due. <laughs> I, I, no, it, it, it was a sign of a curious and brilliant mind and mm. that's something that a teacher relishes is wow. a, a student whose curiosity literally brings them into the office thank you yeah like i i your courses to me were just a revelation you know i really treasured um everything i learned from them and in, in fact it was is funny because of course i i don't happen to use music theory in my everyday life i work in technology uh, but a friend of mine recently, um, he bought a keyboard and, you know, he said, oh, Val, he goes, I think I may need to learn a little bit of theory. And I'm like, oh, I could probably teach you a bit of theory. And then all of a sudden it was like I had this like recess of just like information. <laughs> and I just started saying all this stuff. And I'm like, wow, I still know it. That's amazing. <laughs> so, yeah. And I mean, I think, um, you know, I'm kind of getting at a point in my life where, you know, not, not being a career musician or, or, you know, making my money through music, but, you know, there's a real um, resurgence in my interest in the academic side of it. And um, I want to make more time, um, you know, to, to pick that up in whatever form it takes, you know, so I, because I think it's, it's a part of me that um, other than, you know, playing in the rock band, as I said, which, you know, it was a lot of fun and, and had a whole different aspect about it. But the actual academic part of music and music history and theory, um, yeah, I really missed it. And I feel like I'd love to pick that up again. So anyway, so, it's been a pleasure talking to you. <laughs> I have a, a return question for you. What is your most vivid memory of me? Okay. Well, there's so many. <laughs> um, I do remember... Um, being terrified because I think we did do some sight singing with you. Um, you know, you were the first teacher to teach uh, sight reading, you know, and I think that speaks to how, how you were. And I remember when we were learning intervals and, you know, reading them on the page and it was, but, but you always did it in a way we all got up there and you always did it in a way that made it really fun, even though it was completely terrifying. <laughs> and I also loved, um, you know, I loved during music history, you know, you would always kind of give us the, the goss that was going on at the time. So when you were talking about some of the things like the Lomar May Mass um, and how, you know, there were these big churchy choral pieces, but there was like hidden this secular song in the tenor line, you know, and some of those kind of things, which were just made it more fascinating, made it come alive. Um, and then, of course, uh, music theory came uh, on the dot, one o'clock, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and we would watch Days of Our Lives and constantly be late, five minutes late for your class. And so, 
if rather than get annoyed, you would say, okay, let's hear the latest. What is Stefano up to today? <laughs> and I always thought I loved that about you because, um, yeah, you were just very, you were so knowledgeable and so inspiring, but really had that um, really caring, empathetic part of you. And you could tell that you loved um, getting through to people and wanted to make sure that you know, they were really learning. Um, and I just, yeah, I just, so many memories, just so great. Yeah. Well, thank you. I'm humbled. Mm. <laughs> it was a great time. <laughs> well, thank you very much for being on the, the podcast today. Um, I'll include some, you know, links to some of the things that uh, we talked about today for anyone that's interested. And who knows, maybe we'll have a future episode um, when you get your next book released, perhaps. <laughs> that sounds great. Thanks so much. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. Continuing on the theme of female creativity, join us in the next episode where I talk to Gina Brown, a woman who abandoned her safe and secure day job late in life to pursue a career in comedy and acting successfully, I might add.